Ah, oh, lovely Sunday morning. We have a barbecue birthday party planned today. Um, it's my mother's birthday uh, and also my wife's birthday. My poor mother has been pretty much in lockdown for months now and I think he's probably more excited than me about getting together family and friends today uh, and obviously my wife always enjoys a party so that should be great hi i'm chris i'm just a normal guy well at least i was until my son killed himself now nothing is normal and i'm realizing that nothing ever was normal and nothing will ever be normal again but thank you for joining me on my argument with grief today i'm joined by someone very special to talk about our joint loss This may be difficult for us, and I apologise in advance if it's not as polished as we'd like. But I want to introduce you to my son, Alex, Ben's older brother. Hi, Dad. Alex works in London, where he lives with his girlfriend, Jess. He graduated last year from the University of Bath with a degree in psychology. He and Jess are currently in the process of buying their first property in London together. Uh, Thanks for joining me today. I know we picked a good day for this. We're in the middle of a family barbecue in the garden. Um, You and I have just uh, rushed our burgers to come and record this important episode. It's been over three months now since we lost Ben. How would you say you're coping? I think having a blanket question like that's quite hard to answer, um, simply because there's a lot of good days. And at the moment, as you've just said, we're buying a flat. Me and Jess are both working full time. We're having very good days. sometimes even guiltily good days like we shouldn't be feeling as good as we are Um, and then there's other days where it's not so good but I think overall at the moment for me I have taken comfort in something that I didn't expect to originally Um, I probably wouldn't have thought it about suicide before but for me Ben made a choice and Ben made lots of choices throughout his life some I agreed with some I didn't and this is another choice that I did not agree with but he had the right to make that choice. And had you have asked me six months ago, um, how would someone cope with suicide? If someone had asked me that question, I wouldn't have given that answer and said, think about it as a choice that they've made. But that's what's worked for me. And I think that's something that has come up a lot in this these last three months is what's surprised me, the ways I've been able to cope with things. Some, some ways where I thought I would do well, I haven't. In other ways where I thought I wouldn't do well, I've done better than I thought. So I think that sort of summarises how it's been. It's really interesting you, you talk about guilt because I, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, I get a lot of guilt. Mm. Probably unnecessary, but I get guilt around am I commemorating him in an appropriate way? Mm. Am I trying to push him out of my thoughts at certain times? Am I not maybe building the legacy he would have wanted? Uh, what, what sort of guilt... do you find coming into things it it varies over two types of guilt there's one that's a very personal one um where i'm feeling happy and this is probably more exemplified in the first few months um was or the first month since um after ben's suicide if i felt happy and i was laughing i would realize i shouldn't be feeling that way and that was quite a personal thing i had raised a standard for myself and i was not keeping myself to that standard that's where the guilt came from i think as it's progressed Um, and I've developed coping mechanisms and I've been able to talk about it a lot more um, with other people and that's really helped me. A different sort of guilt has crept in, which I think is actually less just, which is what do other people think about how I'm dealing with my own guilt? People who have been through bereavement, especially by suicide, know that it's a very personal journey and you go through it your own way. And people who haven't been through bereavement by a suicide 
obviously don't understand so it is a very personal thing but there's still a creeping sensation of am i doing grief the right way am i being too happy am i being too sad am i moving on too quickly am i moving on too slowly and yeah from since about month one through to month two and three that's shifted from a personal thing of i need to feel this way because that's the right thing for me to feel to that's how i need to feel because that's how other people think i should feel i think that's been a shift over the last month or so i'm not overly comfortable with it but that is how i'm feeling right now and it sounds like you're you're finding like i do often unintentionally people don't seem to understand or they maybe have this human construct of there being a time limit say of two or three months whereby we're supposed to move on to another stage but we're unable to do you you find it difficult with certain people that they just don't seem to get it sometimes i think most people want to get it and that's the crucial thing um if everyone anyone ever gets it in inverted commas wrong then they don't mean to get it wrong and that's something that reassures me is if someone does say something that upsets me they don't mean to they don't mean to upset me so again that sort of helps me yeah i think as a as a society as a whole we do put a limit on grief i mean we have workplace policies that says you're allowed grief um, bereavement leave for two weeks for example and that's a hard limit on right you've bereaved you've been bereaved you've gone through your grief um job's done back to work you go and so i think there is that sort of expectation we have as a society we like to standardize things and we therefore like to standardize grief right well wrongly in my opinion but rightly or wrongly i think if there's anyone who ever feels there is a standard time limit for grief that's probably informed by something external to them i don't feel that's going to be a truly held belief that's going to be something that they've learned through the policies we have in place and the society structures we have in place whereby you have for example two weeks of bereavement leave yeah we we don't know the answer and that's really what this podcast is about is how on earth does grief affect us um apart from my father grandpa Mm -hmm. we haven't lost anyone particularly close to us in the last few years so even we don't really understand what it's like i think all we can say now is it's crazy tough and it will go on for a long time there's an interesting thing here is you know i'm a middle-aged man i'm not going to live for as long as you are you are going to live without your brother for the rest of your life which is hopefully going to be a long time Mm. how do you think you're going to cope with that i I'm forever going to be a man who has lost a brother to suicide. That is a label that I will carry with me for the rest of my life, which I think was one of my very early thoughts in the first week or so afterwards, is this is something that's going to be with me for the rest of my life. And and that is true, and that hasn't gone away. I think in terms of how I'm going to cope with that for the rest of my life is the same as any part of my identity. I have I have lots of different things that I can attribute to myself and make that make me unique. So your introduction named listed a load of um identity features that i fully identify with i live in london right now i'm a londoner um i work a full-time job that's a big part of my identity um jess as my partner is a big part of my life like those are all parts of my identity and i just now need to find a way to slot in amongst i work and live in london i have a partner i'm buying a house i need to slot in my brother has killed himself when he was 22 and that's a tough ask they don't congruently fit well when you describe yourself to anyone you tend to focus on the positives you talk about your job which hopefully you like you talk about kids for example or your family members all all people that you um love so you try and focus on the positives it's how do you fit in that um harsh negative of i have all these great things in my life 
And I've also got this one really terrible thing that is not going to go away for me. That's probably made clear. I don't know how I'm going to live with that for my rest of my life, but I have to. Um, there's no way around that. You forever will be a father whose son took his own life. I will forever be um, have a brother who took his own life. And like my younger brother and sister, they are also going to forever have a brother who has taken his own life. My mother, she's had a son who has taken his own life in the same situation as you. So as tough as it's going to be to try and formulate that into a workable future, we have to. It's, not, it's never going to go away. Ben is not going to cease to exist. And that's true of the positive aspects of him. So the amazing person he was, how kind he was, how, how much he was able to easily make friends, that's not going to go away. Just as much as the fact he took his own life at 22 is not going to go away. Um, so we need to learn how to do that. I agree. It, it crosses my mind sometimes. That I'll, there'll come a point, uh, which I'd rather I didn't get to, where I will just stop mentioning it to people mm. because I don't want the discussions. Would you ever take that route or do you think that's the wrong way to remember him? Um, I don't think I will ever take that route and I think that's born more out of stuff from uh, my life previously. So I, I worked within student mental health and I volunteered within a for a mental health charity whilst I was at uni for three years. I've always felt talking about mental health is a thing that we all need to do. And I've tried to be very open with my friends about how I'm feeling and when I'm feeling bad, when I'm feeling good. And I've wanted to talk about when I'm not. And I feel like this is no different. This is a problem of mental health. So just as I've always talked about depression with my friends, I've got a friend with it with a quite a severe eating disorder who I who I've talked to about very openly. I want to never stop talking about how Ben took his own life um, because I don't think it would be right to um, for his memory if we want to talk about such a vague thing. But I don't ever want to stop talking about how my brother took his own life because the moment I stop talking about it is the moment where someone else who loses a family member to suicide can't talk about it to me. Um, if people feel like they can't talk about suicide then we're not going to. Um, and it's only through talking about these sorts of things on these sort of forums like podcasts, but with your friends, with your family, it's only by talking about this that anything's going to get done about it. So no, I don't think I'll ever, I hope I never get into that position where I don't want to talk about it. You do touch on something very interesting there, which we should delve into a bit further if you want. When you were at uh, Bath, I, I know you had a role within Student Minds um, before we talk about your experiences there, just quickly explain again for everyone, what was it that you were doing in your role? Absolutely. I um, volunteered for three years with Student Minds and I was what they called a student facilitator. Um, and I did exactly that. I facilitated conversations. So Student Minds, especially at Bath, ran a series of courses. Um, we had one for people with mild depression and we had one for people with eating disorders. We had ones for those who were supporting others who were self-harming, that sort of thing. And we were there to facilitate conversation around those hard topics. As is quite clear in society around us, we're not always comfortable talking about our own mental health or other people's mental health, especially when you stick 10 people in a room who are all, by being there, admitting they have mental health issues. That doesn't make the conversation flow. So that was my job, was to facilitate the conversation, make sure people were able to talk about it. And then we also ran a load of campaigns. We tried to 
enact change throughout the university. We did a huge project on the personal tutoring system at Bath um, and have recommended a huge amount of changes that should happen within the personal tutoring system to make sure that students aren't falling through the cracks. So that's that's what Student Minds did at Bath. And so interesting, obviously, probably relevant to Ben's case. Why do students suffer with mental health issues? Or is that such a big question? There's any number of reasons. I mean, asking why anyone suffers mental health problems is such a broad question. It's incredibly hard to answer. And I mean, how do mental health issues come about? Um, And there is no one clear answer. And you look at any theoretical framework and it's all about genetics. But then the next one's all about socioeconomic factors. A lot of it's all then about the past experiences of the family. There's all sorts of roots into it, which all merit some investigation and that applies across the whole population and students are no different i mean there's some particular stresses that students face that you wouldn't get elsewhere in different walks of life so for example a big part of being a student is not having any money and that's that's a huge stressor is if you haven't got enough student loan if you don't have a part-time job how are you going to afford your rent and if you can afford your rent how are you going to eat and then if you can eat how are you going to go out and socialize with your friends which is what university is supposedly all about so there are some unique parts of being a student that make it particularly hard then there's unique parts about being middle-aged that make it particularly hard there's unique parts about being at school that make it particularly hard so i think in terms of the mental health journey at uni a it's very personalized but b there's so many factors that can weigh in that it's hard to point to a single one all we can really do is help people who do identify they're suffering from mental health issues to get the help they need and improve their mental health well-being in fact in my last podcast i tried to concentrate on the socio-economic factors as you say um though interesting obviously in ben's case that probably wasn't a major factor but i think it is for a lot of people who suffer from mental health issues in fact we were able to quote some statistics are a bit frightening in some respects ben of course i suspect was more a case of genetics and neurodiversity the two of those hand in hand in our case do you agree with that I think Ben had some ways of thinking that were present while he was a child, but probably manifested a bit more when he was more isolated at uni, um, where he took down his own self-esteem to such a level that he felt he couldn't amount to much. Whilst he was at home and around the family, we could probably protect against that, build up his confidence, that sort of thing. I feel like while he was away at uni, he didn't have that protection against it so whilst genetics and neurodiversity would have played a big part i think there's some thinking patterns there that just established early on um that never really changed so help me understand bits that i never understood about my son to a degree what what was it like growing up with ben as a younger brother um ben was my younger brother i think there's some universal experiences all older siblings have with their younger siblings at at points you hate them at points they're the most annoying thing in the world they're very embarrassing but at other times he was the only person I could play with the best person I could play with he was the only one who really got what I was talking about the thing to remember with Ben is he was a different person depending on who he was with and because I followed him mostly wherever he went, especially in childhood, when he was at home, he was a different person to when he was with his friends. And I saw both of those. Um, when he was playing his sport, he was, again, a very different person. And I saw that part of him. What my takeaway from my childhood with Ben was, was how to adapt to your audience. I've never been personally very good at that. Sometimes my cold self um around whoever i'm with when actually ben was the one who was showing me i didn't see it until recently he was the one showing me you need to act differently depending on who you're talking to because different people react to what you're saying differently and i think 
he learned that very early on and and people are always saying oh be yourself just be who you are and people will accept you or they won't Ben was accepted by everyone because he made sure that he put the best version of himself for that person across um, which I've never been able to do and I think that's the biggest lesson I've always learned from Ben growing up is be the right person for the moment Did you always know he was different from you? No I think that that was quite early on I realised that um, I didn't necessarily realise that the way he went about things was sometimes better, sometimes worse. But especially in terms of presenting the best version of himself for that person, he did that from a very early age. Um, he had always been someone who could adapt to his surroundings um, and he could flip from talking to one person in a very different way to how he would talk to the next person. And he was very capable of doing that and I've never been able to do that. And that's from very early on. He would he would always be able to act differently f- with, say, grandma and grandpa than he would at home. Um, whereas I think I acted very similarly, mm. um, which has benefited me in great ways. I've hopefully come across a bit more authentic at times. But at the same time, I think Ben was able to get people to understand his viewpoint a lot more easily than I can I mean you've certainly always you've spoken your mind more clearly than Ben ever did and probably like me probably overstepped with um, weighing in with your your viewpoint sometimes and I'm sure you agree with that but I mean here's the crucial bit here's the bit that really hurts in some respects for all, all of us with different reasons I've got my reasons you with your own reasons and Ben more naming one not being able to open up about not feeling well I'm going through a journey in that respect at the moment. I think you are too now. Why do you think Ben never told anyone? I I think there's some crucial points around that, just generally with people talking about mental health, but especially children talking to their parents. And through my experiences talking to students, especially with mental health difficulties, um, there are two main reasons that I find kids won't tell their parents how they're feeling or especially if they're not feeling well the first one is they don't want their parents to worry which i think is authentic and almost universal across um children parent relationships i think nobody really wants to make their parents worry and they don't want to be the source of any worry that their parents are going through the second one i guess is when children tell their parents a problem a parent's job is to fix it Uh, a parent's job is to look for fault fix that fault and make things better when you're three and you cut your knee you go to your parent you say i've cut my knee the fault is there you fix it you put a plaster on it it's all better mental health doesn't work that way um so i think when a kid comes to their parent talking about mental health problems they are expecting a fixing problem which first of all starts with assigning blame so where has this come from we've brought you up the best way possible you we've you've never wanted for anything how can you be suffering mental health problems that is a first hurdle but even if you then get past that hurdle and help your parents see that mental health doesn't come necessarily from childhood but can be from all sorts of avenues of life there's still a a want i find from parents to want to fix that and there's not always an easy fix and definitely not one necessarily that parents can help out with Sometimes they can, but that's not an assumption that should be made. And in my case, I would feel a tremendous amount of guilt that I missed the signs, as they'd say. Exactly. And that's how did I miss those signs? That's what I'd almost caution you specifically, but any parent talking about mental health, especially with their children, from doing. I think that's the the most obvious route to go down, but it's not necessarily the right one. Mental health can come from all sorts of places internal external within the family within friends within everything else with society around them 
And I think looking at why certain people miss certain signs is not helpful to the overall picture of how do we stop this suicide epidemic? How do we stop people from taking their own lives? How do we make sure that people's mental health well being in general is better? I think looking for blame and assigning blame is not helpful for that conversation. And obviously, yes, you're right, I shouldn't blame myself nor should anyone else in a similar situation, but they're thoughts that pass through any human's mind. Um, there's always a view amongst any father that the box stops with them ultimately, and that, that always sits in the back of my mind. Touching on you know, the difficult subject still, your mother and I separated when you were 10 and Ben was 8. Speaking not on your behalf, not Ben's behalf, what, what was the impact of me leaving the family at that time? At that time, genuinely, it was positive. The household wasn't happy, and I think everyone who was in that situation can, could see that. Um, there were happy moments, sure, but it, the general mood was one of walking on eggshells, especially from my point of view. You and mum separating removed that stress for me, and I would say for Ben as well. So in the immediacy, that's a good thing. Um, the negatives are all the long-term things. We didn't see you as much as maybe we should have. We didn't make as much of an effort. I know that. I know I personally didn't. And then you you had a whole new family, which came with whole new responsibilities. So finding a place in that um, in the long term was tricky for both me and Ben. So in the immediacy, it was a good thing. I think in the long term, probably, and I think Ben felt the same way, it would have been nicer and probably better for both of us to have a better relationship with you, um, our stepmom and our two new siblings as well. Uh, for which there are certainly a lot of regrets from my point of view then. Do you, do you think though with your more logical mind uh, that maybe you coped with that better than Ben did? I think the fact I was older helped me cope with it better. Um, I feel like Ben never quite remembered a full representation of what life was like when you and mum lived together. Um, and it wasn't horrible. I don't want to characterise it as if it was horrible. Um, there were some incredible times that I really cherish. Um, but I think by virtue of Ben being younger than me, he didn't necessarily remember um, some of the worst parts and would remember the good parts. And therefore the separation seemed like a bit of a... He understood why it happened, but he didn't get it in quite the same way as I did, which I think is, that's always been a source of comfort to me that it helped in the immediacy. I don't think Ben had that source of comfort. Which I can understand given his age as well. I mean, the horrible irony in a way is it's obviously what's gone on has brought your mother and I a lot closer again. Um, we seem to be pretty much on the same page of everything we've done throughout this, this terrible process. Uh, and in fact, it's brought us all closer together, stepfather, stepmother, mm-hmm. uh, and everyone else involved in the wider wider family um it's just a pity it took this i guess to to bring us to that point how how do you think we as a family can move on i I think it's for me and i i wouldn't want to talk for the rest of the family but for me it's continuing this conversation around mental health i think something i've been talking about for years now since i joined student minds even before that um so um ben taking his own life has only um, solidified my view our conversation around mental health Um, especially within the UK is very much at the point where most people are aware that mental health is a thing mental health is something we should be aware of and that people suffer with Um, especially within my generation I think there is still some generational divide that needs to be addressed but we've taken it to that first step where awareness has been reached um, for the most part what we now need to do is give people the skills 
with for how to deal with mental health. Um, the analogy I've used for years now is when you're telling people to talk to their friends, open up about mental health, you're asking them to bake a cake without a recipe. They probably know what a cake looks like. They probably know that eggs go in it at some point, but they don't know how to make a cake. They don't know how long to go in the oven. They don't know what order the ingredients go in. And it's the same for mental health. When you tell people to talk about mental health, when you tell people to open up to their friends, if you don't tell people how to do that, they're not going to know how. You need to start giving people this recipe of how do we talk about mental health and it's a skill building exercise if you want how do we make sure that when people are talking to us about mental health that we're listening properly and we're saying the right things when people when you want to open up about mental health how do we make sure that people are able to say the right things so that other people understand what they're going through how do we make sure that people can understand the insights in themselves to see the early warning signs of mental health problems developing and I think if we can do any part to move that conversation forward to that next stage I think that's how I will personally get through this and of course the irony is Ben could bake a very nice cake (laughs) I do miss his cakes interesting quite early on Uh, in the process of what should we do about a legacy for Ben and setting up a charity foundation. It was you that identified one particular charity, Papyrus, um, as being someone that we should have a look at and maybe work with. Um, Interesting enough, yes, that's built into a positive relationship and only this week we've donated £25,000 of our money raised so far to them. But what what was it that drew to Papyrus? What do you think they're doing that's so special? So I was aware of Papyrus through my work with Student Minds and we were researching what charities we can signpost people to if they were in um, a suicidal state. Um, so I was aware of them, but it was only after Ben died that I started to really look into exactly what they do and realised all the good work they do. So the main part of their work is around their Hopeline service, which is a staffed telephone line that you can ring if you're ever in a moment of suicidal crisis and you can talk to someone about how you're feeling. And hopefully that will be a positive conversation and you'll feel better for it. That's the crux of what they do. And I think that's so important. It goes back to what I was saying about people not understanding how to talk about mental health. The people at the other end of the phone at Papyrus know how to talk about mental health. They're trained professionals. They know what they're doing. So this is firstly why I think we need to create a general understanding of how to talk about mental health, because then we can all talk about mental health in the same sort of way. But then also at the moment, that general understanding isn't there and these people have it. And that's why I think they're such a valuable resource, because they know how to talk to people and they're just there to listen always. Um, which I think is what someone who's in the worst place in their life needs. I think every encounter we've had with them so far has been fantastic. They really do seem to be a driven set of people, and I think we'll carry on working with them for a while. Help us understand again a bit more, because I still struggle. What is life like in 2020 for a young adult? What, what, where do the pressures come from? I think everyone's individual pressures are very unique, so I won't speak for an entire generation, but some of the trends I see amongst my friends and my peers is there's a growing feeling amongst my generation in particular and I imagine the generations below me are feeling they are lacking control in their lives so one of the most poignant examples for me at the moment because I'm buying my first house is buying a property and getting onto the property ladder 60 years ago was the done thing you move out you buy a property that's what you do in life that option is out of reach for a lot of my generation I'm incredibly lucky that I am able to buy a flat and that's only through grandparent help 
So that's one example of losing control. And I think the job market is such a way that you do have to just apply for whatever will fit your skills and hope for the best. You can't pick and choose what career you want um, unless you're going down a very specialised route because you don't have that control over that aspect of your life. Um, You don't have control over where you rent. Or if you do get to rent, then you don't have control over the property that you own. If early on you do choose a career that you want to follow, you then have no control over your choices at GCSEs and A-levels. I think that's probably one of the biggest stresses we, or at least me and my peers have faced, is we don't feel in control of our own lives and our own destiny. And I don't know if that's a new thing because I haven't been part of an older generation, but that's certainly the feeling that I get. How would you summarise your major ambitions for life? Um, Be happy, make other people happy. Um, I think this is one of the big ways in which me and Ben were very similar. We just wanted to do what made us happy. Um, What made us happy was very different. Ben wanted to join the army, which is something I would never have done, but he wanted to do what he thought was right for him and I've always wanted to do the same and if along the way I can help other people be happy um, or even bring them out of some dark places then great that's that's an added bonus a lot of my generation and possibly the older generations too I sort of waken up to a feeling of guilt that they've grown up with a selfish materialistic approach to things and it's unfair to label all of us with that Mm. but I have found with the the dealings with yourself and in your generation a far more caring open and willing to share generation do you do you feel that generational divide I'd like to think so I think as I said my generation I again would like to think is much more aware of mental health problems and therefore are much more willing to talk about them Uh, mental health problems aren't a a new thing Um, they've been around since we've been human it's just only now that we're really starting to get into what they mean how they affect people i think we as a generation are able to appreciate more so than previous generations that people are going through some really tough times and that's not because other generations didn't care about those around them that's because people of other generations didn't share their suffering they didn't share that they were going through a tough time so people weren't aware of it yeah i agree actually um in many ways there's just the conditioning that we went through that meant we just didn't open up about certain issues Uh, and i'm i'm having a joyous time at the moment opening up to friends and family some of whom are shocked and some of whom are very supportive Let's, let's go back on what we've been through over the last few months there's been some pretty horrible moments i'll be honest actually still the most terrible moment that sticks in my mind is the very first moment Mm -hmm. i the moment when your mother rang me with with the news Mm -hmm. there's still not been a worse moment than that one can you remember that particular moment and how you felt absolutely i mean that that hands down is the worst moment of my life when mum rang me up and said that ben's dead immediately followed by he took his own life I can't remember what I was thinking in that moment. I, 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 don't, I don't think I was thinking. Um, I was sat at my desk. Um, I was working at the time from home, obviously. Um, and that phone call came out of the blue. And I think Jess and I just sat there for a good hour, not moving, not thinking, not doing anything, just trying to process it. And that hour felt like a week. Um, we just didn't know what to do. What, what do we do now? Do we go home do we see you do we talk to anyone do we ring work there's a lot of focus on what do we do next rather than how are we going to deal with the now i think you're right i think it was a fairly similar experience for me it was certainly a sort of a feeling of i lost control of myself as a person because i can't remember was i standing was i sitting was i 
stumbling around I don't know I do know that within a few minutes I'd stumbled down to the end of the garden where my wife was in the office uh, and just blurted it out to her uh, and then it just went crazy after that uh, a day we don't we never want to live again but since then of course yeah we've managed to find some positives we've managed to, to do some great stuff we have lots of dark days are you drawing any positives from the journey that that we're going through at the moment absolutely I mean we I think we've done some really amazing things with our charity work. I mean, the big focus, and it always has been, has been on the money. Um, and we've raised a ridiculous amount of money. Primarily started through Ben's Old Squadron, but then we've sort of latched on and helped out with that as well. But it's not just about the money. I think the message we've been talking about throughout anything on the charity or through this podcast has been just as vital, if not more vital, because we're talking about suicide. We're talking about an individual who took his own life, as well as the thousands of individuals who will continue to take their own life until we do something about it. It may not be tomorrow, it may not be this year, it may not even be this decade. If we can stop one family through conversations we're having now and are being a part of from picking up the phone and hearing that one of their family members has taken their own lives, then yeah, that's a huge positive because no one should have to go through that. We have, but that doesn't mean other people have to. Certainly from the first few months, that was all that would drive me out of bed every morning. I think I've widened that slightly since um, I'm now starting to look at maybe doing some public speaking around this subject uh, and some other positives that I can bring. Uh, but you're right, ultimately you always come back to the I don't want other families to, to have these feelings because they're terrible feelings. W- what do you cling on to now in terms of Ben? Uh, I mean, I, I, I have his ashes sitting there and I talk to them um, when I know nobody's watching me. Um I have a few physical things of his. I have a shirt that matters uh, and I have the legacy that we keep talking about. What what, what do you cling on to? Anything? Yeah, I mean, I have a little part of my mantelpiece with a penguin, Ben's favourite animal, um, and a picture of me, Ben and Jess at a wedding um, in a photo booth making silly faces. I've got that up on my mantelpiece as sort of a little place where I can think about him. But Material for me isn't the right way to remember Ben. Ben was not a material person. He always thought anything he owned was a means to an end. He didn't actually care about the things he owned. Um, What he cared about were memories. And what I'm clinging on to are the memories I have of Ben and the memories I'm now going to make as a result of Ben. Ben's given me a new drive to want to see the world and to help people who are going through mental health crises. So that's what I'm clinging on to is the memory side of it. Is there one great memory that will always stick with you? Um, no, actually. Um, I'd love there to be a nice easy answer to that. There's, there's so many to choose from. I, I grew up with him. He's been around since I was 18 months old. So to choose one memory would be really tricky. But I think that there are some really great ones. And I, I really want to hold on to the bad memories as well as the good because that was the rounded person that Ben was and that was the rounded relationship we had it wasn't all good it wasn't all bad but there's some times that I remember where he really annoyed me because he was my younger brother yeah. but there's other times where he was the one that I was teaching how to do something um, or he was teaching me how to do something so I remember all of that and I don't want to lose any part of that and I think I'm probably the same a lot of people ask me what's my best memory of Ben and I suspect every day I've got a different answer because I've thought of something else or looked at a different photo um, or it's an anniversary of something. So you're right, it is just the combination of so many memories. Good and, yeah, some bad ones because he could be a bit frustrating at times. But boy, we miss that. Yeah, I'd love to have him annoy me one last time. 
thanks Alex for doing something that both of us have found rather difficult um, we've come a lot closer through this journey for which I'm so grateful it helps me a lot and it means a lot in terms of getting me through so many of these dark days um, we're going to go back to our barbecue in a minute and have some birthday cake but thank you and thanks dad for having me on it's been a tricky conversation um, but one that we both need to have and that more people need to have around the world so it's been one hell of a journey so far last few months uh, so I've decided I think it's time to um, hit the road for a couple of weeks clear my mind see a bit of this beautiful country enjoy what I can whilst we've got some lockdown easing uh, so I'll be away for a while um, be back beginning of September um, we'll have a website by then really looking forward to where we take episodes uh, when I come back even though you're forever on my heart I miss you loving so glowing and tired join me next time on My Argument with Grief <laughs>